too many of us fall into an everyday trap. We allow ourselves to believe that science and the humanities are entirely different worlds, and that everything blending them is somehow revolutionary. But should we seriously let some social constructs put our universe into a box? This is Bio Beyond, where I take apart some topics that transgress those invisible boundaries, and I do it in a bite-sized tidbit. Right now, deaths from drug use are unfortunately high. Deaths from opioid overdose, including illicitly manufactured fentanyl, have risen sharply since 2013. Two out of three drug overdose deaths in 2018 involved opioids. It's undeniable that drug use is a danger in our circumstances. But too many see a narrow view of addiction that doesn't encompass all the reasons why someone might get addicted, and the greater consequences of treating addiction as a choice, and the dangers of incarcerating individuals who are struggling with drug abuse. In today's Bio Beyond, we're exploring how and why people get addicted, and how much we can impact the problem by changing our schools of thought. Addiction isn't just a drug-related issue. People can be addicted to all kinds of things, like gaming, gambling, or anything else that offers that release of the neurotransmitter dopamine. Addiction hinges on this release of dopamine. Victims of addiction build up a tolerance to whatever they're addicted to, and up their dose to chase more of the feel-good chemical, as it's called. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's essentially a reward chemical. Things like eating and exercising naturally trigger the release of dopamine, rewarding a person for doing things beneficial to their survival. It can be classified as a neuromodulator, which is a subtype of neurotransmitter because of how it modulates sensitivity to other neurotransmitters. In animal studies, it's been shown that dopamine depletion interferes with conditioning and reflexes impeding animals' ability to be capable of finding food, shelter, social life, and avoiding pain. The role of how this kind of painful stimuli affects dopamine still isn't understood well in in addiction studies. There's some different types of drugs, stimulants and depressants. These subtypes are actually wildly different, and the only common factor is their alteration of the human body and mind. Stimulants activate the central nervous system, or CNS, while depressants depress it. The CNS is the brain and spinal cord, which are absolutely a vital part of the human nervous system. So vital that it's in clothes and bone, like your your skull and spinal cord, to protect it. Stimulants, such as methamphetamine and Adderall, make people more aware, raising blood pressure and raising heart and breathing rate. Adderall in particular is usually used to treat ADHD, to improve alertness and attention in people with ADHD. However, it can clearly be misused by people without it. People might take these types of stimulants because they create feelings of happiness and euphoria, increase energy and alertness, or a smaller appetite. Misusing stimulants can lead to dire symptoms like psychosis. Depressants, as the name implies, depress the CNS reducing its function and causing drowsiness and relaxation. Depressants cause people's self-restraint to decrease. Alcohol is probably the most well-known depressant because of how widespread its use is. Depressants cause lack of coordination, memory problems, and confusion. Each subtype of addictive drug affects the dopamine system in different ways. For example, cocaine, a stimulant, 
blocks the reabsorption of dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin, the latter of which may cause aversive effects in parallel to dopamine's euphoric quality. Like other diseases, genetic factors can play a role in someone's risk for addiction. Certain genes have been associated with vulnerability to addiction. Variations in the genes for the nicotinic receptor can lead to a greater risk of addiction to nicotine. Studies have also shown that stress can influence the susceptibility to addiction. It has been shown that addiction changes the circuits of the brain. Unaddicted brains have more self-control, as the want for a drug can be suppressed with the circuits that control rational and healthy decisions. Meanwhile, addicted brains are different, as repeated drug exposure can decrease the function of these prefrontal cortical circuits and make the addict lose the ability to resist taking the drugs. Victims often are all too aware that what they're doing is hurting them, but they can't stop. Eventually, addiction progresses so far that it's impossible to remove the substance of addiction without causing withdrawal symptoms. These can be intense, physical, and mental. Addicts need help to quit. Furthermore, pharmaceutical companies are unlikely to invest in addiction studies for a myriad of reasons. They see the market as small or think that clinical trials will be difficult because of legal issues, for example. But medication is a real thing that can help addicts, and the opioid crisis makes it clear that there is an issue with the way we handle addiction. Other treatments like behavioral therapies might also be used. Seeing addiction as a moral failure is just plain incorrect. It's a disease of the brain, and addicts deserve help just as much as anyone else struggling with a disease. This stigma around drug abuse dates back to 1971, when President Nixon declared a war on drugs. Nixon's tactics involved the mass incarceration of drug addicts for nonviolent offenses, and the media began to crack down on drug abuse, portraying it as a lapse in morality. Addicts were declared weak-willed, as they couldn't just say no, like how school-aged children were taught to resist drugs in the infamous D.A.R.E. program. Nixon's 1970 Controlled Substances Act, or CSA, contained five schedules meant to gauge how dangerous commonly misused drugs were. Schedule 1 drugs were considered the most serious and addictive, including heroin, LSD, ecstasy, and marijuana. This list is clearly missing some of the most addictive drugs in existence, nicotine and alcohol. Why is alcohol, which kills more than 95,150 Americans per year, not on Nixon's list, but marijuana, which is almost impossible to overdose on, is? And, just a quick aside, I'm not minimizing the dangers of marijuana. A lot of people think it's a safe drug, and that's just not true. There's plenty of other risks associated with it. But it's still something to think about, how alcohol use is so normalized in our society that people might not even consider it a dangerous drug. This perception of addiction has passed unacceptably into the public opinion. Harsh drug laws impeded harm reduction strategies, like offering access to clean syringes to curb the HIV-AIDS epidemic. It's true that substance abuse can begin with a decision, but the reason why addicts keep using is because of a biological switch in the brain. It doesn't matter that they know that they don't want to ruin their lives and their relationships. They can't stop, and that's not a moral issue. The mass incarceration of drug addicts is also a cause for concern. Incarceration just doesn't help people who are addicted. It doesn't help mental health issues, which is a major risk factor of addiction, even hindering inmates' ability to get help. 
Punishing minor drug offenses is expensive too, and it doesn't address the root cause. Locking people in a cell without access to substances doesn't work. There's also the issue of possible racialized motives behind the war on drugs. Nixon's domestic policy chief, John L. Rickman, stated that the war on drugs goal was to remove the Nixon administration's quote-unquote enemies, including black people. It's evident that black people are disproportionately affected by drug laws. President Ronald Reagan's administration brought up these concerns once again with the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which came under fire because of its leniency towards powder cocaine, which was used more often by white Americans than black Americans. The war on drugs still continues today, though it isn't quite as intense or it doesn't have as much public support as in previous years. And addiction is not a moral failure. I keep saying this, but I feel like it has to be hammered into some people's heads. Maybe it's not you as a listener, but if you take one thing away from this episode, even if you turn it off right now, let it be that addiction is not a moral failure. It is a disease. Punishing people for it isn't going to help. In a study on a rat model, addicted rodents were shown to prefer a social reward to self-administration of the drug they were dependent on. Meanwhile, when social choice was punished, the animals returned to drug use. This study is applicable to humans because of how it centers social choice. Using social choice as the reward more closely applies to how humans are social beings. People who have nowhere else to go and during social punishment are far more likely to use substances. They are trapped in a vicious cycle, as the stigmatization of drug use is a social punishment resulting in rejection. It's not easy to change public perception on such a wide scale. So many people still subscribe to the stigma around addiction, and it's still so difficult to get help. People get rejected just because healthcare providers who are supposed to care see their disease as their own fault. So the next time you encounter this topic, think critically about how you think about drug addiction. So many of us have have this stigma ingrained in the way we think and perceive the world. It's time to take a stand and demand that addicts be given the resources they need to get help.